It is a delight to be with you, delighted for this opportunity. This paper is kind of the climax of a journey. It was a 10-year journey for me uh, in wrestling with the issue of baptism. And uh, this paper, even though I've been a convinced Baptist since 2004, um, I'm finally getting to put it onto paper. It was biblical theology, whole Bible theology, that made me pull out my applications to two Presbyterian schools and say, I've become a Baptist. And so this is a, a paper designed to help you become beefy Baptist. Um, so to that end, let's pray. Father, I'm asking for fresh grace right now. Meet us as we look at some very detailed texts. Give us clarity, eyes to see, ears to hear. Encourage us by the vastness of your purposes, the predictive nature of your promises. Thank you for Jesus, to whom all scripture points, from whom all fulfillment comes. Be honored now in these moments. Amen. I will do my best to remember um, to move the slides along. It's a very simple PowerPoint, uh, just identifying my main headings. Jews and Gentiles is the seed of Abraham. Paul refers to both Jews and Gentiles in Christ as Abraham's seed. This is clear in Galatians 3, 28 and 29, where he asserts there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are of Christ, then you are offspring of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. This echoes his stress in chapter 3, 8 and 9, that all those who are of faith, whether Jews or Gentiles, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Similarly, with the citation of Genesis 17:5, Paul affirms in Romans 4:16 and 17 that the promised inheritance depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all the offspring, not only to the inheritance of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Now in the very next verse, Paul again alludes to the same text and links Abraham's fatherhood of the nations with the promise in Genesis 15:5 that the patriarch's seed would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, who in hope against hope believed that he would become a father of a multitude of nations. According to what he was told, so shall your offspring be, Romans 4:18. The Apostle views the Gentile participation in the New Covenant community as fulfilling Old Testament promises regarding the seed. Now turning back to the Old Testament, within the original context of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants, seed most directly designates a category of biology or ethnicity distinguished from the nations or the Gentiles. Indeed, it is through the seed that the nations would be blessed. God's overcoming Adam's curse and reconciling to himself some from all the families of the earth. How then can Paul, in Romans 4.18, link Abraham's fatherhood of many nations, Genesis 17.5, with the promise that his offspring would be as numerous as the scars, Genesis 
The challenge is that Genesis 15.5 appears to address most immediately only natural seed. Please look to the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. So shall your offspring be. Now within the context of Genesis 15, the seed promise specifically answers the dilemma raised by Abram's assertion that Eliezer of Damascus is his heir but not his seed. And God stresses that the very offspring that would come from your loins, Genesis 15:4, would inherit the land. Also, Abraham's struggle in Genesis 15 is directly associated with the earlier parallel promise that his seed would become like the dust of the earth and claim the land, Genesis 13. The rest of Genesis associates the seed promise of Genesis 15:5 most immediately with the patriarch's natural descendants, a select group of which would inherit the promised land. Elsewhere, references to the stars and dust are similarly limited in focus to the promise of land and to the old covenant nation of Israel, the land that would be lost and the nation that would dwindle to a small remnant through the curse of exile. Furthermore, later Old Testament texts, especially from Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah, explicitly restrict seed language to biological lineage when associated with the old covenant age. Nevertheless, we will see that Genesis itself and a number of Old Testament prophetic texts anticipate the expansion of the seed of Abraham to include those redeemed from both ethnic Israel and the nations during the eschatological age of the Messiah. As Paul recognizes, including nations or Gentiles among the seed fulfills an eschatological hope that is linked with the new covenant associated directly with the representative saving work of the promised royal deliverer, Messiah Jesus. This paper considers some Old Testament roots to New Covenant ecclesiology, specifically from the perspective of the language of seed. Now space constraints for this particular paper have required focusing principally on two texts, Genesis 17 and, a portion, and portions of Isaiah. My Jets version, Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, that will be out in September, includes many more reflections beyond just these two. Following a synthesis of the argument and an assessment of Paul's use of the Old Testament, this final segment of the paper, the final segment of the paper will unpack the implications of the study for New Covenant ecclesiology, arguing for the legitimacy of a progressive covenantal framework in contrast to the systems of dispensational and covenant theologies. Abraham, father of a multitude of nations. I've noted already how Paul applies Genesis 17.5 to Jews and Gentiles in Christ, Romans 4.17. With this, Paul most likely cites Genesis 17.8 when he states in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. These references demand a closer look at Genesis 17. Abram's fatherhood, by nature... Or adoption. In Genesis 17:5, Yahweh changes the patriarch's name from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of a multitude, thus highlighting his revealed destiny. Specifically, God would make Abraham a father of a multitude of nations, Genesis 17:4 and 5. The fulfillment of which Paul identifies when he writes, In you, Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed, Galatians 3:8. Yahweh further promised, I will give you for nations and kings will come from you, Genesis 17.6. And then he reiterated the same proclamation with respect to Sarah in 
Similar promises were made and re, were later made and reiterated to Jacob, though with some variation. A nation and a company of nations will come from you, and kings will come from your loins. Genesis 35:11. Two observations suggest that the paternal language used in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's relationship to the nations connotes a family tie that is not restricted to or perhaps even associated with biological descent. First, throughout the Old Testament, the plural form nations most commonly refers to political entities larger than tribes and usually not including Israel. As such, because the promise to Sarah that she become nations is most likely a reiteration of the parental promise made to Abraham in Genesis 17.6, meaning that the two promises refer to the same reality, and because two nations, Israel through Sarah's grandson Jacob and Edom through, his, through her grandson Esau, seem far from the multitude that is promised, the parenthood to which Genesis 17, 4-6 and 16 refer most likely points to a non-biological relationship of authority. Second, while the Ishmaelites, Edomites, Midianites, and several other peoples mentioned in the genealogy lists of Genesis 25 and 36 are known to have biologically derived from Abraham, only the one nation of Israel is known to have descended from Jacob. Consequently, the fact that Jacob is to bring forth a company of nations suggests his family is larger than his, his family is larger than Israel and will include other nations somehow related by adoption. In Desi Alexander's words, the very fact that Genesis 35.11 distinguishes between a nation and a company of nations seems to imply that whereas many nations will be closely associated with Jacob, only one nation will be directly descended from him. Now the above evidence calls the reader to view Abram's paternal relationship over the nations principally as an elected rather than formal or biological association. The Implications of Abraham's Fatherhood because blood tie is not determinative in Abram's fatherhood, his status and role, at least with all nations other than Israel, must be established on the basis of covenantal adoption. Nevertheless, while this adoption will result from the covenant of circumcision addressed in Genesis 17, the adoption is not into this specific covenant in its original form. For all circumcised member of, members of the community, whether the alien resident or the father, son, or household servant among the native-born, were considered part of one nation, later named Israel, a nation that is here only one part of the multitude of nations parented or overseen by Abraham, likely through his royal representative." These observations give rise to at least three significant implications. First, Genesis 17 highlights the progression of two distinct covenantal eras that were already anticipated in the framework of Genesis 12, 1-3, where Abraham must first go to the land in order to become a nation realized in the Mosaic Covenant, and then once there, he must be a blessing in order for all the families of the earth to be blessed, realized through Christ in the New Covenant. And I direct your attention over to the handout, Number one, you'll see even though the most English translations don't capture it, there are two imperatives in this passage that create two distinct stages in the Abrahamic covenant. The first focus on nationhood covered in Genesis 15. The second focused on the blessing reaching all the world after someone representing Abraham is a blessing. Be a blessing. The initial period is shaped by Abraham's biological descendants living in the promised land 
as a nation. The nation would become known as Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. They would claim the promised land, bearing the charge to heed God's voice in order to serve as mediators and displayers of God's holiness, and by this, agents of blessing to the world. Exodus 19, Deuteronomy 4. This is the initial era. But next... In light of the temporally successive imperative, be a blessing, next comes the final period, the age of fulfillment, which is enjoyed only after Abram's, Abraham's seed, realized in Jesus Messiah, serves as agent of curse-overcoming blessing. During this period, known now as the New Covenant, God would reconcile mankind and Abram would stand as the father of many nations, a fatherhood manifest through an earthly royal descendant who would rule over all. Second, at one level, both the covenant and land associated with the initial era should be treated as eternal. For God would fulfill his purposes for the Abrahamic covenant progeny and property, Genesis 17, 7 and 8. At another level, however, the eternality of the Abrahamic covenant is qualified by the period of fulfillment. That is, while the Abrahamic covenant is eternal, it gets transformed in the age of the Messiah, both with respect to participation and with respect to property. Genesis 17 envisions a day when Abraham's fatherhood will expand beyond ethnic Israelites to include the nations. The fact that God chose to use Israel as the agent of the world's deliverance will ever establish a temporal positional distinction within the one family of God. As Paul would note, there are natural and wild branches in the tree of new covenant life. Romans 11. Nevertheless, the promise of a global inheritance will be for all, both Jews and Gentiles, who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, Romans 4. With this, there is an implication that God's kingdom will no longer be limited to the promised land, but will, like the original vision of the Garden of Eden, have expanded to include the planet and its numerous peoples, the blessed glory of God filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, ever expanding the Garden of Eden as the imagers of God carry His image, His glory on display to the ends of the earth. This kind of expansion is suggested in Genesis 22, 17b and 18, where we are told that the unique male deliverer will not only bless all the nations, but he will possess the gate of his enemies, third masculine singular, meaning that he will have claimed once enemy territory, his kingdom expanding to fill the earth. The same expansion appears evident in Genesis 26, 3 and 4, where in the context of the global blessing promise, God pledges to give Isaac and his seed not only the land, but also these lands, plural. Third, because the people later known as Israel are but one nation among the many that Abram will oversee as covenant father, and because the particular male royal descendant of Abraham alone will inaugurate the age of blessing, Genesis 17 works with Genesis 15.5 to set the stage for Paul in a context of eschatological fulfillment in Christ to identify Jews and Gentiles as having a place in the one family of Abraham, apart from circumcision and the law that would later be associated with it. That is, the progression from the Abrahamic and Mosaic administrations to the new covenant in Jesus answers how Paul can apply seed language to Gentile Christians who never became Jewish proselytes. They are counted as seed only because they are identified by faith with the seed who is Christ. The progression of the covenants transforms the makeup of the new covenant community, shaping it around connection with Christ through a faith like Abraham's, Genesis 15, 6, Romans 4, 3, and 5. 
The community stands distinct from that of the previous era because the members include elect from both ethnic Israel and many other nations of the world, all of whom are heirs of the life-giving, barrenness-overcoming, miraculous power, who have witnessed a pattern of faithfulness and through this have become recipients of divine blessing and who are now serving together under a king in the line of Abraham who bears global influence and rule. All of these features of progressive covenantalism that highlight all of these features, all of these are features of progressive covenantalism that highlight the centrality of Christ in God's redemptive purposes. The servant and his seed in Isaiah. While tagging Abraham as the future father of a multitude of nations sets the stage for non-Israelites in the age of fulfillment to be considered part of the Abrahamic family, we have thus far not focused on any Old Testament texts that overtly apply the term seed to non-biological descendants of Abraham. The Pentateuch teaches that non-native aliens and household slaves could become Israelites and that their children would be considered the patriarch's seed, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah the Hittite, But this required full incorporation into the Abrahamic and later Mosaic covenant communities, including male circumcision and other law-keeping. There are a number of Old Testament eschatological texts, however, that explicitly anticipate a broadening in how seed language is applied in the age of of the New Covenant associated with the Messiah. We will restrict our study to some passages in Isaiah. Now, more than any Old Testament prophet, Isaiah detailed the nature of the Messianic age that would fulfill the Abrahamic promises of worldwide curse destruction. Like other Old Testament prophets, he envisioned Israel's restoration coming in two stages. So after they've been in exile, a two-stage restoration. And Isaiah's not the only one. Hosea, Zechariah, and Daniel all envisioned this two-stage process. The second of which, the second stage of which aligns perfectly with the second stage of the Abrahamic covenant highlighted in Genesis 12 and 17. The initial physical restoration into the promised land is the first stage. Spiritual reconciliation with God is the second stage. Stage one, liberation, later associated with Jeremiah's 70 years, would be wrought by one named Cyrus, says Isaiah. Stage two, atonement, would be secured by the royal Davidic servant and would include blessing reaching the nations, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic stage two covenant. The book ends with the proclamation of such glories to Zion and the world, and the climactic vision of the new creation. And wrapped into the midst of all of these end times eschatological promises are a number of references to seed that help clarify Paul's application of offspring language in the New Testament. The survivors of the nations as the seed of Israel. Now, I'm just going to hop over this section, but what I argue for is that Isaiah 45:25, that in Yahweh all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and will glory, that within the context, it strongly suggests that Gentiles are actually part of the offspring of Israel in that text. I'll touch on this more momentarily. The many becoming seed through the servant king's atoning work, 3.2. Does Isaiah clarify what generates the broader application of seed language in the age of fulfillment? He appears to elucidate this answer in the last of the servant songs, which highlights the substitutionary atoning work of the Davidic servant, Isaiah 52.13 through 53.12. 
The prophet earlier highlighted that following the fires of judgment against Israel, Yahweh would cause a holy seed in the line of David to sprout, 613. A royal seed whose kingdom would be eternal, whose life would bear fruits of justice, righteousness, peace, wisdom, and faithfulness in the likeness of God and in a new and consummate Garden of Eden, and whose reign would include a remnant from every nation, chapter 6, 9, 11. Building off this botanical imagery in 6.13 and 11.1, the prophet later says of Yahweh's servant, he grew up as a tender plant before Yahweh, and like a root from dry ground, neither form nor majesty was to him, Isaiah 53, verse 2. So we see the, the, seed or the seed or sprout language in chapter 6 and chapter 11 applied to the royal king. And then in Isaiah 53, we see it applied to the suffering servant. Thus the servant of Isaiah 53 is none other than the promised royal son of David, anticipated throughout the book. While he would indeed be exalted over all and enable spiritual sight and understanding to nations and their kings, 52.13-15, such would be accomplished only by his bearing the sins of many in his death, so that the many could in turn be counted righteous, 53.11-12. and 12. The righteous servant would suffer a substitutionary guilt offering would suffer as a substitutionary guilt offering under Yahweh's just wrath. But having fulfilled his purpose unto death, he would rise and be completely satisfied at the sight of his offspring. Hear that. His seed. He would see the seed and be satisfied. All who are now redeemed. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. So what is the identity of the many, and how does this many relate to the servant's seed? Recognizably, when Isaiah speaks of redemption accomplished and applied to this, in this unit, he regularly uses the first common plural as in statements like, and, we, and he was pierced for our uh, wrongdoings, being crushed on account of our iniquities. The chastisement that secured our peace was on him, and with his stripes he has secured healing for us, 53.5. While Isaiah was an old covenant enforcer, the us to whom he refers did not include most of his Israelite peers, who were never granted ears to hear, chapter 6, and from whom the prophet's visions were sealed, chapter 29. Indeed, anticipating the rebel majority would remain unmoved at the coming of the messianic king, Isaiah declared, Who has believed our report? Isaiah 53.1. The answer? Nobody. Very few a passage that both Jesus and Paul cite in relation to Jewish hard-heartedness, John 12, Romans 10. Certainly the us included a remnant of ethnic Israelites who would have ears to hear, people like Isaiah. But at least five reasons suggest that a saved adopted remnant from the nations is also included in this us, or that at least these from the nations are part of the many and the offspring in Isaiah 53, 11, and 12, standing as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. First, one, the book has already highlighted the international nature of the royal servant's saving work, Isaiah 42 and 49 and 51. Two, leading into the servant's song, we are told that the age of fulfillment would include testament that God reigns in Zion, 52.7, and a vision of the salvation of our God by all nations of the earth, 52.10. Three, this servant song explicitly opens with a message of global salvation, 52, 13, and 15, through 15. The mention of kings perhaps, echo, 
perhaps echoing the Abrahamic promise of Genesis 17.6, the many nations of Isaiah 52.14 and 15 paralleling the redemption of the many in Isaiah 53.11 and 12, and the sprinkling of the nations in Isaiah 52.15, highlighting that they directly benefit from the servant's sacrifice. Four, Isaiah explicitly shifts from the first common plural reference, our or we, to the generic many, spreading it out. Five, the New Testament authors readily draw on these texts for the application to all the redeemed in Christ from both Jews and Gentiles. Example, Romans 4, Romans 4, 1 Peter 2. Significantly, Messiah Jesus neither married nor fathered physical children. His offspring in whom he delights, therefore, Isaiah 53.10, must be identified through spiritual adoption. This means that the offspring of the new covenant community will only include the many to be accounted righteous in Christ, 53.11. This bears significant implications for new covenant ecclesiology. New covenant seed as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Support for this view of offspring is gained in the very next chapter of Isaiah, which develops a portrait of this messianic age, Isaiah 54. The text opens, and this is part of your handout, Sing, O barren one, she did not bear. Break forth a song and cry aloud, she did not experience labor pain. But many more are the children of the desolate one than the children of the married one, 54.1. Here the barren one recalls the matriarch Sarah's barrenness, Genesis 11.30. Whereas the married one appears to point to Hagar, maidservant whom Sarah gave to Abram as wife in order to answer the offspring problem, Genesis 16. Like Paul, years later in Galatians 4, what Isaiah sees in this historical account is a layer of prophetic allegory that anticipates the certain though tardy fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in the new, and that also foresees the new covenant superseding the new covenant superseding of the Mosaic covenant through the death and resurrection of the servant king. Earlier, while unpacking his message of eschatological global salvation in Isaiah 51, Isaiah urged any who pursued righteousness and sought Yahweh to return to their roots, looking to the rock from which you were hewn, and to Abraham your father, and to Sarah who bore you through birth pain. For as one I called him so that I might bless him and multiply him. Isaiah 51, 1 and 2. Now the rock is probably an allusion, I think, to Deuteronomy 32.18, which designates Yahweh as the rock who bore Israel through birth pain, Chayel, likely an enigmatic reference to the symbolic representative judgment Yahweh underwent in redeeming Israel from Egypt, specifically during the sixth act of rebellion in Exodus 17. Can't go into that. The initial call then is for the audience to consider the implications of divine mercy, implications that I'll develop fully later. The image of God experiencing birth pain is that somehow he undergoes the judgment that others should have deserved. With this, Isaiah grounds his discussion of the eschatological hope for salvation in the original patriarchal promises that Abraham's headship over a blessed multitude would be assisted by his princess, matriarch Sarah. Genesis 17, 4 through 6 and 16. Furthermore, the mention of Sarah in Isaiah 51.2 enables the prophet to use her life then in chapter 54 to explain the greatest covenantal progression of the ages. For like Sarah, whose barrenness continued until there appeared to be no hope of promised fulfillment, 
so too the Abrahamic covenant had extended through the centuries without fulfillment. Abram's fatherhood and Sarah's motherhood never reaching their intended goal of blessing the nations. Nevertheless, in calling his audience to look to Abraham, look to Sarah, Isaiah reminded them of the Genesis promises and pushed them to, to anticipate this, that salvation would rise out of the judgments of exile. Just as Sarah in her old age did give birth to Isaac and ultimately the nation of Israel, so too the Abrahamic covenant would indeed reach its goal. The children of the desolate one would become even more numerous than those of the rival old covenant represented by Hagar, Isaiah 54.1. Now in that future day, the covenant community's dwelling place, it says in verse 3, 53, Isaiah 54, verse 3, it says the covenant community's dwelling place would need to be expanded. Why? Because the family would be so much more numerous than before. Your offspring will have inherited the nations. Therefore, because there's nations that are part of the tent, it needs to be bigger. In light of the Abrahamic context, this phrase suggests not only the expansion of the promised land to include the world but also the fulfillment of the blessing reaching all the families of the earth. Abraham will have become the father of a multitude of nations. And because the redeemed nations operate as an inheritance, they appear to be fully identified with and incorporated into the offspring of Abraham, their head. Importantly, Isaiah 54.1 notes that the generating of offspring in the new covenant occurs without labor. Do you hear that? It occurs without labor, without birth pain for the covenant people. Sing, O barren one. She didn't bear. Break forth a song and cry aloud. She did not experience labor pain. But more are the children of the desolate one than the children of the married one. Two very significant implications can be drawn from this. One ecclesiological, the other soteriological. First, in contrast to previous covenants, the seed of the new covenant are not physically born into covenant membership. Even Sarah ultimately experienced labor, pain, labor and pain at the birth of Isaac, Isaiah 51.2. But the barren one's lack of labor and childbearing suggests that spiritual adoption, not physical birth, would characterize the identity of the new children. The physical genealogical principle so evident in the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants does not continue once the Abrahamic covenant reaches its fulfillment to the new. For membership is now solely conditioned on spiritual rebirth, which is generated, as we are going to see, through the sacrificial death of the servant king, 5310. While nothing in the text suggests that ethnic distinction will be eradicated in the New Covenant, the wording does mean that membership will not be assumed simply because of ethnicity. Furthermore, because the offspring of Abraham have now been re-identified as only those who are part of the servant king's spiritual offspring and have thus been accounted righteous, 53.10-11, Isaiah would not affirm the view of covenant theologians that an infant's birth into a family with at least one believing parent grants the child full membership in the new covenant community. Second, first one ecclesiological, second one soteriological. Second, because throughout Scripture, labor pain is directly associated with judgment, Genesis 3.16 and beyond, and only rarely accompanied by hope. Just look through the text. Labor pain judgment occurs over and over again without any sense of hope beyond. 
The primary focus is you're experiencing curse. Because throughout Scripture, labor pain is directly associated with judgment and only rarely accompanied by hope, the absence of birth pain in Isaiah 54.1 most likely means that the judgment through which new covenant salvation is birthed was born by another, namely the servant king of the previous chapter, 52.13 through 53.12, whose sacrificial death would satisfy God's wrath against the people and display the curse-bearing mercy of God himself. Now that the royal servant substitutionary atonement described in 52.13 through 53.12 is indeed the birth pain judgment that brings forth the new covenant family in chapter 54 is suggested by at least four parallels. One, the many, <clears throat> the many who would be counted righteous, the many in 52.14 and 15 and 53.11 and 12 are the many in the miracle family of 54.1. Two, the servant's offspring in 53.11 are equated with the offspring of Sarah in 54.3 who have been expanded by, inherited the na- by inheriting the nations. 3. In 53.11, the righteous servant king makes many righteous. And in 54.14, the redeemed city is established in righteousness. 4. The servant, singular in Isaiah 52.13 and 53.11, gives rise to servants plural in 54.17 and beyond. Servants that explicitly include a remnant from the tribes of Israel, 63. 6317 and servants from the nations Isaiah 56 verse 6 Furthermore it is important to see that two times already in Isaiah Judah has declared herself unable to give birth that is they've been unable to generate their own deliverance chapter 26 and chapter 37 instead the people continued fruitless with respect to godliness and desolate under god's judgment 49:19 64:10 because no one was being a blessing divine favor was not reaching all the families of the earth genesis 12:2 and 3 thus the abrahamic covenant remained unfulfilled in isaiah's day while the mosaic covenant flourished in carrying out its judgment curses on the unfaithful people leviticus 26 deuteronomy 28 yet yahweh in alignment with his character and in fulfillment with his past promises, announces that he would act in mercy on his people's behalf. Now hear this, how it's worded. Though they were unable to rescue themselves from divine wrath, Yahweh promises to concretely and completely bear Israel's judgment of labor pain in their place, and in doing so, complete a new antitypical exodus. Hear this verse. I have been silent from long ago. I have been quiet, says the Lord. Isaiah 42, 14 and 16. I've been quiet, says the Lord. I've restrained myself. Like a woman in labor, I will groan. I will gasp and pant together. And I will lead blind ones in a way that they do not know. In paths they do not know, I will guide them. I will change darkness before them into light and rough places into a plain. God promises that the answer to Israel's brokenness is that he will bear labor pain judgment on their behalf. That's Isaiah 42, 14 and 16. Now earlier I observed that in Isaiah 51, 1, Isaiah charges his audience to consider the first Exodus labor pain that Yahweh symbolically endured on their behalf. Deuteronomy 32, 18. Now in contrast, Isaiah 42, 14 in, in Isaiah 42.14, he emphasizes that the new covenant in second Exodus would be marked by an actual, not pictorial, but actual penal substitution for sin accomplished by Yahweh ultimately through his royal servant. 
Yahweh's actions in 42, 10 through 17, bearing the offspring, the, the, uh, the labor pain judgment on himself, closely parallels those of the servant king in the first servant song, Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. So I'm going to parallel 42, 1 through 9 and 42, 10 through 17. 42, 1 through 9 focused on the servant who would become the king over all through his suffering. And Isaiah 42, 10 through 17, which is focused on Yahweh. Yahweh's actions in 42, 10 through 17 closely parallel those of the servant king in the first servant song, Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, thus identifying how closely the two work together. Both bear influence among the coastlands. Both redeem the blind and serve as guides. Both overcome darkness with light and both put to shame carved idols. The servant, we are told, would be nothing less than the arm of Yahweh, chapter 53. The spirit-endowed agent of God, Isaiah 42, who would be given as a covenant for people, a light for the nations, Isaiah 42. Yahweh would be pleased to crush him, Isaiah 53, in order to secure far-reaching atonement, chapter 53. But this servant would also die the substitutionary death willingly. Isaiah 42, 50, 53. All for the joy set before him to work out the will of Yahweh through redeemed offspring. Isaiah 53. This royal figure would embody the presence of God. Isaiah 7, 6. And would bear the character of God. Isaiah 9, 28, etc. And through him God would establish his reign on the earth. Isaiah 9, 52-53. As the representative royal offspring of Abraham, the royal servant's faithful obedience would secure new life for all who submit to his kingship. And these redeemed would then be counted his offspring, a children no longer desolate, but now flourishing and expanded, having inherited the nations. 54, 1 and 3. What hope is found in Isaiah's good news? Conclusion for this Isaiah section. Other texts could be focused on, like those addressing becoming sons and daughters of God by identifying with the royal son, Isaiah 43, 44, 45, or the multi-ethnic seed as servants of Yahweh in the new creation, Isaiah 59, 61, 65, and 66. Nevertheless, I have noted enough texts to show that Isaiah envisioned the age of new covenant fulfillment to be centered on the servant king who would have offspring from both Jews and Gentiles identified with him solely by spiritual adoption. He, as the representative of Israel, would become the agent of universal blessing, the instrument by which Abram's royal fatherhood would be realized on a global scale. Synthesis and fulfillment in Christ. Abram's fatherhood realized through Christ. I began this paper by observing that Paul's application of the seed designation to both Jews and Gentiles in Christ, Romans 4, Galatians 3, is a step that marks a redemptive historical shift from an age of promise to an age of fulfillment. Both the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants incorporate seed language in three primary ways. One, all those who by physical birth were part of Abraham's family, Esau included, Two, a subset of Abraham's biological descendants who take on national status as Israel within the promised land, Esau not included. And three, a unique individual biological son who would play a significant typological role in redemptive history, types leading to Christ, the antitype. While the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants did not regard first-generation proselytes as seed, they did consider their children to be such, making covenant membership and offspring status almost completely overlapping. 
While the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants initially restricted seed language to physical descent, they also pointed ahead to a day when covenantal spiritual adoption would replace ethnicity as the foundational mark of the patriarch's fatherhood. The promise that Abraham would become an adoptive father of many nations anticipated this shift. And then prophets like Isaiah predicted it through their eschatological new covenant promises. Together these prophets envisioned an international people gathering in an eschatological Zion under a single Davidic king, whose own penal substitutionary death would exalt him over all. At the cross, Christ experiences the divine labor pain judgment that births salvation for the many, securing for him the inheritance of the nations. Since Christ's atoning work, the true offspring of Abraham are those who have become the seed of the messianic servant king through spiritual rebirth. They have experienced the great exchange that their representative head supplies. He bears their sins and counts his righteousness as their own. The narrowing of the seed and the hope of the promised offspring. Whether due to divine selection or personal forfeiture through covenant disloyalty, the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenant texts often identify subsets within the overall descendants and by this create a continuum of various types of offspring. Asaph speaks in this way when he writes that the Israel to which God is good is only those who are pure in heart. Psalm 73.1 Such narrowing resulted in a mixed community made up of members with different status and privilege and among which one could distinguish those offspring associated with Abraham only by biology and ethnicity and those true offspring also linked to him by faith in his God. Both types of members received the covenant sign of circumcision and both were ultimately called upon to keep the Mosaic Covenant. But only the latter group typologically pointed to those in the New Covenant. Those from faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith, Galatians 3.9. Within the New Covenant, Paul speaks of his fellow ethnic Israelites saying, not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel, Romans 9.6. Similarly, Paul earlier affirms, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. But a Jew is one inwardly, Romans 2:29. Elsewhere we learn that God regards both Jews and Gentiles as part of the true Israel of God, Galatians 6:16. If they are joined by faith to Christ, the true Israel, Isaiah 49:3 and 5, and Abraham's true seed, Galatians 3:16. From the beginning, the revealed goal of the national aspects of the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 17, was that the progeny and property associated with the patriarch would expand into a global kingdom with Abraham serving as the father of a multitude of nations through his representative king, Genesis 12, 17, 22, and 26. Faith in God to fulfill the offspring promise is what fueled Abraham's life of obedience. And it testifies to the patriarch's inability to bless the world. He couldn't do it on his own. Only the true offspring could fulfill it. That is, from the beginning, the believing remnant viewed the promised royal deliverer as representative of the many. And only through his representative obedience and substitutionary sacrifice would blessing ultimately reach all the families of the earth. This one, Messiah Jesus, is the true offspring of Abraham, Galatians 3.16, in that he, in fulfillment of the Genesis promises, bears the role of father, enemy destroyer, and blessing mediator on Abraham's behalf. But he is also the patriarch's superior. For the hopes of both Abraham and the world rested on him. John 8, 56, 58. 
Those who surrender to Jesus as representative authority will indeed participate in the single family of God and be counted Abraham's seed. Galatians 3.29 Implications for Theological Systems I want to conclude this paper by considering how the biblical portrayal of the seed of Abraham supports a progressive covenantal framework. To do so, I'll distinguish my interpretation from that of dispensational and covenant theologies. Progressive covenantalism and dispensational theology. Highlighting discontinuity between the Testaments, dispensational theology has traditionally viewed the New Covenant Church not as a continuation or replacement of Israel, but as a unique people of God in redemptive history. In this framework, ethnic Jews in Christ still maintain a distinct privilege to the promised land that they will enjoy in a future millennium separate from believing Gentiles. This study affirms the newness of the New Covenant community, but not in a way that distinguishes the privileges of any members within it. In Christ, Jews and Gentiles alike are co-inheritors, fellow body members, and co-partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, Ephesians 3.6. The inheritance is out of faith in order that according to grace the, promises may be, the promise may be certain to all the offspring, not only to those out of law, but to those out of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, just as it is written, a father of many nations I have made you, Romans 4.16 and 17. Furthermore, Christ fulfills in the church God's long-range purposes given to Abraham. Because all the world's hopes for reconciliation with God rested on what God would do through Abraham, Genesis 12.3, the nation of Israel's disloyalty and punishment heightened the world's condemnation, distancing all in greater ways from hope, Romans 3.19-20. Nevertheless, when King Jesus, who stands as Abraham's ultimate seed and represents national Israel, Galatians 40, uh, Isaiah 49, Galatians 3, when he performs all required obedience, he secures life and blessing for redeemed Jews and Gentiles alike, who together make up one regenerate people of God, the seed of Abraham, Galatians 3.29. Rather than being an unexpected formation, the New Covenant Church in Christ is the natural anticipated end in the progress of the biblical covenants. Now, many progressive dispensationalists today affirm Scripture's teaching that Christ is the true and ultimate Israel, temple, seed of Abraham, and so on. Most of these, however, would agree with Michael Riccardi that the application of seed language to Gentiles in Galatians 3, 28 and 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, that that application requires only that Gentiles enjoy the blessing promise, the patriarchal nation land promises continue only for ethnic Jews who are in Christ. In his words, in Galatians 3, Paul represents justification by faith in Messiah as the fulfillment of the promise of universal blessing to the nations through Abraham's true seed. It does not, he says, cancel or reinterpret the promise of land for the great nation, end quote. Further, another dispensationalist, Robert Saucy, has stated, the promise concerning the physical seed constituting the nation of Israel, the promises concerning the physical seed constituting the nation of Israel remain alongside the universal promise, even as they did in the original statement of the Old Testament. End quote. Now, I believe this line of reasoning is flawed on a number of fronts. First, the view fails to appreciate the 
the two-stage progression evident within the Abrahamic covenant itself. Stage one realized in the temporary Mosaic covenant, wherein Israel became a nation enjoying the land. Stage two was inaugurated when this nation, through its representative head, fulfilled the charge to be a blessing and thus served as the instrument of blessing to the world, Genesis 12.3. In fulfillment of the Old Testament hopes, stage two, realized in the eschatological everlasting new covenant in Christ, sees the seed and land promises fulfilled in a way that includes the nations, yet without geopolitical barriers, Ephesians 2, 13 through 17. This is accomplished as the true seed of Abraham becomes narrowed to include only those identified by faith with Jesus, the ultimate seed. And as Christ, the royal offspring, delivers Christ, uh, the royal offspring deliverer claims once enemy strongholds, Genesis 22:17, through his ever-expanding new royal family who now bears witness to him on a global scale, Acts 1:8, and offensively confront the gates of hell, Matthew 16:18, with the testimony of Christ's victory over evil and with the certainty of the new heavens and the new earth. Within this family, Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ, Galatians 3.28, one new man, Ephesians 2.15, together enjoying adoption as sons, Ephesians 1.5, with equal partnership in the inheritance of the saints, Colossians 1.12. Second, the view that Gentiles in Christ participate only in the blessing promise, but not also in the ultimate fulfillment of the seed and land promises, fails to recognize that the reference to plural promises made to Abraham and to his offspring, Galatians 3.16, suggests that Paul in Galatians 3 had in mind multiple promises in Genesis, not just the one focused on blessing. Now, I agree with Saucy that because the concept of nation promised in Genesis 12-2 carries a territorial aspect, the land must be viewed as the necessary corollary to the promised seed that would constitute the great nation. End quote. But if this is so, and if the blessing promise includes a reconstituting of the seed with a global identity in Christ, then one should be cautious to separate the land promise from the same transformation. Indeed, within the argument of Galatians 3, the eschatological fulfillment of the land promise appears to stand behind Paul's argument. We see this in at least two ways. One, the inclusion of the conjunction, de, in the phrase, and to your seed, sorry, it's chi, chi su, to, to start a quotation with and in Galatians 3.16 implies that Paul's indeed quoting scripture because it doesn't fit the flow of his statement. He's quoting a text. And that text is most likely Galatians, Genesis 3, 13.15, 17.8, and or 24.7 because these are the only instances of that phrase and to your seed that are given to Abraham in the Septuagint of Genesis. Now, of these, I think the most likely candidate is Genesis 17:8, for the mention of Abraham becoming the father of a multitude of nations in the immediate literary context of Genesis 17 anticipates the inclusion of Gentiles in the people of God, which is one of the key issues at stake in Galatians 3. But regardless, what must be recognized is that all those texts in Genesis 13, 17, and 24, all three of those texts in Genesis address land promises. The promises were made and to your seed. All of those are land promises, which means that Paul in Galatians 3 is stressing that the blessing, seed, and land promises find their culmination in Christ, that each can only be understood rightly in relation to him, and that the eschatological fulfillment of the land promise is part of the inheritance that is enjoyed by the reconstituted seed of Abraham. Two, 
Paul's language of inheritance in Galatians 3.18 likely finds its roots in association with Old Testament promises of land, which marked the context wherein God's global purpose God's global kingdom purposes uh, first highlighted to Adam and Eve would be realized. That is the inheritance, think for the Joshua class, is that who's here? Joshua 11, 23. The land is the inheritance. And I think that's where Paul is pulling his language from. So, the inheritance of Canaan always anticipated the expansion of the kingdom to include the world. Genesis 26, Psalm 22, 47, 72, Zephaniah 3, Romans 4, Hebrews 11, 2 Peter 3, Revelation 21. And because the male royal deliverer's global work of blessing was to include both the reversal of the servant's kingdom thwarting purposes, Genesis 3:15, and the possession of enemy gates, Genesis 22:17, there is sound reason to believe that Paul saw Messiah Jesus as inaugurating the fulfillment of the original Edenic vision to see God's earthly sanctuary expanding to fill the earth through his royal priestly imagers. In Christ, God's blessing of seed and land are becoming universalized, just as the Old Testament itself anticipated would happen in the age of fulfillment. Progressive covenantalism and covenant theology. We're coming in for a landing, all right? As for covenant theology, this system has traditionally viewed the church as a continuation or renewal of Israel, though some view it more as replacement. In both views, however, the makeup of the new covenant community remains substantially the same as those of past eras. For all the biblical covenants are simply various expressions of one covenant of grace. Because membership in the covenants associated with Abraham and Moses... Because membership was guided by physical birth into the family of the mediator or by reorientation in spiritual loyalty, like Ruth, covenant theologians have seen no reason why both features would not also be operative in the new covenant. Thus, they baptize babies born into homes with at least one Christian parent, convinced that covenant membership and election, ecclesiology and soteriology, may be overlapping in this age but are never aligned pre fully aligned pre-consummation. While more regenerate members are present this side of the cross, the New Covenant community continues to be mixed with remnant and rebel, saved and unsaved, just as the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants were. In my view, covenant theology's construal does not fully account for Scripture's teaching of the newness of the New Covenant and the distinctiveness of Jesus and His work in redemptive history. First, by treating the Abrahamic covenant as a monolithic reality substantially equated with the new covenant, many covenant theologians miss the, that Genesis 17 distinguishes two progressive eras for the everlasting Abrahamic covenant. The first national, Genesis 17, 7 and 8, with circumcision and therefore a genealogical principle as its sign, Genesis 17, 9 through 13, and the second international, with the patriarch's fatherhood being established by spiritual adoption and no longer bound by biology, ethnicity, or the distinguishing mark of circumcision. Genesis 17, 4 through 6. Elsewhere, Genesis clarifies that the initial stage would find fulfillment only in the second, when an obedient king, the seed of the woman and of Abraham from the line of Judah, would rise, overcoming all enemy hostility and working blessing for all the nations of the earth. Genesis 3, 22, 26, 49. 
Christ's arrival inaugurates the age of fulfillment, thus shifting the covenant community's makeup away from the genealogical principle to one of corporate identity, established through spiritual adoption by faith. But when the fullness of time had come, Paul says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption. It's not simply Gentiles that need to be adopted into the new covenant. It's the Jews so that we, Paul says, might receive adoption. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. In love he predestined us. Paul says, Ephesians chapter 1, 5, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, ironically, G.K. Beale rightly articulates the Old Testament hopes in this way. When the Messiah came, the theocracy of Israel would be so completely reconstituted that it would continue only as the new organism of the Messiah Jesus, the true Israel. In him, Jews and Gentiles would be fused together on a footing of complete equality through corporate identification. End quote. We must see covenantal progression in the move from promise to fulfillment. In Christ, spiritual adoption, not physical descent, becomes the mark of the new covenant community. While ethnic distinctions are in no way eradicated, New Covenant membership is grounded solely in corporate identification with the Messiah and is no longer assumed simply because of biological connection. In this and many other senses, Christ's New Covenant work marks an escalation beyond all previous eras. Second, Covenant theologians must consider more the significance of Jesus being the last Adam, the head of a new creation, the offspring of Abraham and of David who mediates a new covenant that creates the church as one new man. All members in the new covenant are identified with Christ in the heavenly realms, says Paul in Ephesians 2. They are children of the Jerusalem above, says Paul in Galatians 4. Meaning that regardless of one's original heritage, all, all have new birth certificates declaring this one was born there in Zion, Psalm 87. Indeed, as Isaiah asserts, every member of this community is spiritually reborn and thus regenerate. Isaiah 54, 1 and 3. Having become offspring of the servant king by his bearing their iniquities and counting them righteous. 53, 10 and 11. Similarly, Jeremiah stresses that in distinction from the mixed nature of the old covenant, all in the new covenant will know the Lord, for all are forgiven. Jeremiah 31, 34. Now the fact that the new covenant has been enacted in Christ, Hebrews 8.6, using the perfect passive of namathetemai and thus stressing the completed action with continuing results, the fact that the new covenant has been enacted in Christ seems to me to mean that the already that already the new covenant community is made up of only regenerate, even if some aspects of the salvation are not yet complete. Jesus' atoning sacrifice both effects and is effectual. And within the new covenant, soteriology gives birth to ecclesiology in a way that the two are completely overlapping already. Because Messiah Jesus had no physical children and yet enjoys offspring, Isaiah 53.10, and because new covenant membership comes without birth pain judgment for all but the covenant head, 54.1, The genealogical principle is no longer operative. Abraham's fatherhood of a multitude of nations becomes fully enacted through the spiritual adoption effected by his offspring, Christ. 
Just as Yahweh stressed to Abraham that the nations of the earth would be blessed in your offspring, so now God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as we await the full inheritance. Christ is the seed of Abraham and of David, and the one through whom both Abraham's fatherly headship over a multitude and David's eternal throne find fulfillment. Today, Whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, males or females, all become offspring of Christ and then of Abraham, only through union with Jesus by faith. The New Testament knows no New Covenant community apart from this relationship, and therefore the church should apply the New Covenant sign of baptism only to those who are reborn through faith in Christ. It is those in Christ who are sons of God, those who have been who have put on Christ, who are baptized, and those who are Christ's, who are counted Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3, 26 through 27 and 29. Thank you. All right, so we have a few minutes for uh, questions. Uh, Justin, I think, has a roving mic, so he will um, field your, your questions. So let's go ahead and uh, take any questions that you might have. I have some, but I'll wait. Chip. Thanks, brother. I appreciate that. My joy. I don't know if this is on, but I'm talking into it. So um, so I, I just uh, wanted to ha- have it take on a passage from the end of Zechariah 8, where you see... Um, Ten men going, grabbing a Jew and saying, "Bring me up to the Lord." Yeah. Um, so, so it seems like there is some distinction in the future eschatological realities. But what I hear you saying, to some degree, is that's being flattened out. And so, what do you do with a text like that? How do you understand it within your framework and within what you've shared with us today about the ethnic, um, the new ethnic realities within the, um, yes. the promise? So, Paul, the question is, um, in a text like Zechariah chapter eight where we have ten from the nations grabbing onto a Jew's garment and following them to the temple to worship God. What do we do with those kind of texts? Um, what do I do with those kind of texts? So, uh, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, for the Jew first, then to the Greek. Romans 2, verse 9, that the judgment will come to the Jew first and then to the Greek. So, so that's why I said these texts do not blur out all ethnic distinctiveness. But what I'm seeing is that um, Zechariah 9 has already been inaugurated. It's not consummated, but it's already inaugurated in the person of Christ so that Jesus had to be a Jew. Isaiah 49 it's the clearest text in the Old Testament that calls Jesus Israel. Isaiah 49.3, it says, You are my servant, Israel, whom I called from the womb. And then in Isaiah 43.5, it says, You are my servant, who I called from the womb, to bring back Israel. But it's too light a thing that you would only redeem Israel, that you would also redeem, be a light to the nations. So Jesus, we have to, I think, understand when we're reading these prophetic texts that there is a corporate identity so that um, already 
with the great commission to fill the earth, in one sense, there's an apparent, there's an apparent sense in which the Old Testament is a come and see, come to the temple. And the New Testament is a go and tell. But in another sense, it's still a come and see. Because what happens is Jesus is the temple. Hebrews chapter 12 says, we haven't gathered to Mount Zion. Already we have gathered to the new Jerusalem. Already. So texts like Isaiah 2 and Zechariah 8, I see already being inaugurated. And it's coming to us through Jesus and his band of reconstituted Israelites, the 12 men, who are from then being commissioned to go from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And in doing so, because Jesus is the temple, he goes up physically, he sends his spirit, the church becomes the temple, and so it's less a go and tell, and more of the temple is actually coming to people. The temple of God, to be able to meet Jesus, is being ever expanded through the church. So we have two types of eschatological texts. We have the texts that say the Gentiles will spark jealousy among the Jews. And then we have texts that say the Gentiles will come to meet God at the end of the age through the Jews. And those two ha- are, bring attention. Uh, and the way that I resolve it is that the texts that have Gentiles gathering to the Jews already... Um, it's happening through Jesus and the reconstituted Israel of the apostles and that in making disciples and gathering, calling people to follow all that Jesus has commanded them, teaching them to obey all that he's commanded them, people are uniting themselves with Israel. They are grabbing onto the hem of the garment and being drawn in. And then that... Um, all this process, the majority of which the church is expanding among the Gentiles still growing among the Jews, but mostly expanding among the Gentiles. Um, Ben Merkel and I are still, we still need to have our talk, but I'm prone to see that even in the remnant manner of uh, Romans 11, 26, so in this remnant manner, all of Israel will be saved, that there is still an anticipation that um, a larger group of Jews Will ethnic Jews will actually be gathered in, regathered in, as it were, and re-identify themselves with the new covenant. So, um, and and it'll be aroused through this sustained jealousy through the ages of what God has granted the Gentiles. So it's kind of like a child um, who gets a present on Christmas. It's everything he wanted. The gift comes, and then next day he forgets about it, and it goes into his closet until a month later when Johnny. His neighbor comes over and goes and grabs that gift out of the closet. And all of a sudden, it awakens something so that that particular present becomes the very best gift in the world and your child wants it back. I see that somewhat being what's going to happen. Jesus was a Jew. He was the Messiah of the Jews. And now I'm getting to enjoy that gift. And at some point, I think, in an increasing way as we approach Uh, the climax of the ages, as an increasing way, there will be a greater number of these Jews who will recognize that I'm getting to enjoy the gift that was given to them, and Jesus is big enough for all of us to enjoy it at the same time. Other questions? Go ahead and introduce yourself, too. Yeah, I'm uh, Daniel. You know me from Dr. Kostberg's class. Um, not coming from a, a background of either covenantalism or dispensationalism, how provocative is would something like this be? Because I come from a background where we say what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. And so I guess... So how provocative 
Um, you know, I mean, what, what would that be a problem? I think, I think Baptists that, or Presbyterians or, yep. yeah. Um, well, is there any, any dispensationalists <laughs> or, or, uh, covenant theological Baptists in here that, um, feel provoked? Uh, any, anybody want to push back or, or raise questions? I'm provoked, but I'll ask in a minute, but okay. that's okay. In, um, a, in a healthy way, I think. I would say that, I mean, dispensationalists by nature are, have high level of discontinuity and are by nature baptistic. And so most dispensationalists, whether classical or progressive, would be tracking with me. Most of the way, until I say that not only the blessing promise, but also the seed and the land promises are also enjoyed by the, by the entire New Covenant community. So I envision it very much like my children who are adopted, that my sons, Ezra and Joey, and my daughter, Joy, who come from Ethiopia, have 100% full participation in my family. The, my, my biological kids don't have any more privilege than my adopted kids. Everyone together in, is enjoying the same, will enjoy the same inheritance as small as it may be. Um, and, and similarly, I, the way I see Paul talking, I think he's talking that way. And the way that I see the Old Testament anticipating it, I think I see it that way. That, that Israel has to have on their mind that they were always here for the sake of the nations. And their hope was built on, on the son who would come and represent them. As for covenant theologians, um, they would um, disagree, but I'm not certain what their response would be. I sent my paper to Gordon Hugenberger, pastor of Park Street Church in Boston, to Jay Sklar, Old Testament professor at Covenant Seminary, Miles Van Pelt, Old Testament professor at Reform Seminary, and Greg Beal. Um, Greg is an interesting figure um, because, okay, here he's, he's more Presbyterian now than he was before but, uh, because he's at Westminster, but um, I, he, he'll say that's not true. He, he says he's always been this way, but, um, but let, me, let me just read a footnote. And I see a tension going on in Greg Beale. And I would love for him to... I wish he would have responded to me and asked me about it. But I see a tension um, wherein there's some lack of consistency in his New Covenant theology. Um, Let me just read my footnote. Beale, himself a paedo-baptist, baptizes babies, he's a Presbyterian, seems inconsistent in the working out of his own model with respect to baptism. On the one hand, in alignment with the quote, remember he's the one that I quoted about corporate identification. In on the one hand, in alignment with the quote above, he affirms and comments on Colossians 2, 11 through 13, that one text that, equates circum- that connects circumcision and baptism. He says that Old Testament physical circumcision as a type has been fulfilled in eschatological spiritual circumcision and is no longer relevant for entrance into the New Covenant community. Instead, spiritual circumcision, he writes, made without hands, and baptism are ongoing realities designating entrance into the covenant community. Physical circumcision has been, can be seen to have its typological fulfillment also in the rite of baptism. That's pages 808 and 809. 
In these quotations, both in the footnote and the one cited in the body about corporate identification, Beale appears to be affirming a high view of fulfillment that marks substantial discontinuities between the old and the new. Indeed, to speak of the type's fulfillment, that's the antitype. To speak of the type's fulfillment is to speak of escalation, of reaching a goal, of reaching an antitype which identifies physical baptism as something distinct from and superseding physical circumcision. In contrast, when later, and this was written later, I think after he, I I don't know when. Um, He said, later, arguing that baptism should be applied to infants, Beale is forced to change his wording. He says, water baptism is the redemptive historical and typological equivalent to circumcision rather than the fulfillment. He says it's the equivalent to circumcision, 8.16. In moving from fulfillment language to equivalence language, he minimizes the significance and centrality of the work of Christ and the distinctiveness of the new covenant community that he had earlier so beautifully articulated. So Beale is not a normal Presbyterian. In the way that he argues in his book and in the classroom, I had him at Gordon-Conwell, in the way that he articulates things, um, Greg may listen to this someday, and I'm sure Presbyterians are going to listen to this. I think Beale would make a better Baptist than a Presbyterian. Here, here. <laughs> other, other questions? My name is David. Um, I've been uh, enjoying reading through a lot of Horton recently. And so did any of the ones that you sent the paper to respond at all? Um, yeah, as you mentioned just now? They just said... Uh, Miles said, I'll get to it next week, and that was several months ago. Um, there's still the possibility that one of them might be able to respond in jets, even a five-page a five page response. I've invited that, cool. um, but I don't know if it will happen. Um, and Horton makes a, a significant contribution to the, to the Pado-Baptist uh, language by pointing out the sign and the thing signified and using that language to talk about um, what is happening with regard to types. So sure. does, how would that play out, how would that language play out with regard to fulfillment versus equivalence, uh, the sign and the thing signified? Does that uh, change the, the framework at all by using that? Um, the question at hand is, is there any new covenant apart from the priestly mediator? That's what's at stake. And the priestly mediator's work is all-encompassing. It includes full mediation resulting in atonement. I don't understand any new covenant outside of the mediator Jesus. There is no new covenant apart from him, but Presbyterians continue to want to baptize those who themselves have not enjoyed the, the atonement. So they're trying to have a new covenant apart from the mediator, at least for some, so that baptism becomes signification of what could be rather than what is. And I don't see, see the, the language in either the Old or the New Testament when it's addressing the New Covenant community that it ever talks that way. That there is only a new covenant in relation to Christ and therefore you have to be identified with him by faith in order to be a participant. And that sounds very Baptistic. I know that. But I, I don't see 
um, as I work through Horton in preparation for this, and he and I engage him in my footnotes, um, I, I don't see a solid response. When I look um, at his review on, progressive covenant, on the book Progressive Covenantalism on the Gospel Coalition website, Steve Wellam and Peter Gentry wrote the big beast um, called Progressive Covenantalism. Is that what it's called? Kingdom through covenant. Kingdom through covenant. Sorry, the new book is called Progressive Covenantalism. Kingdom through covenant, a biblical understanding, a biblical theological understanding of the covenants. And they had Doug Moo and Daryl Bach and Michael Horton review it on the Gospel Coalition website. And Horton's comments um, focused on Jeremiah 31. He just was stressing that is it not possible that in the already but not yet, that part of the not yet is that not yet is everyone in the new covenant regenerate. And I, I just don't see that aligning with the text. When, when we see the writer of Hebrews saying it has already been enacted, that suggests that it's not that some of it hasn't been, but that all of it is already. And then there's no new covenant apart from Christ. Um, except for these babies who are being baptized apart from Christ. And it just seems inconsistent to me. Um, Any other questions? Could I ask a question? Yes, sir. Um, so it seems like you're, you're emphasizing the two-step process of the promise, um, first immediately to Abraham and his immediate descendants in mm-hmm. Genesis 12 in the land, mm-hmm. if I'm hearing you rightly. Right. And then the second step would be this eschatological uh, vision, uh, if you want to call it a new new covenant or or future Zion eschatology Mm -hmm. of the new covenant or something like that. Uh, And that's grounded in Genesis 12 on your handout, uh, 1 to 3. And I just wonder, um, I wonder if, if, and it looks like you've done this on the basis of the two imperatives, um, but I wonder if that's laying too much stress on the imperatives, a two-step process in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Um, the reason I ask that is because uh, it is conceivable to read 12, 1 to 3 as a promise for Abraham that then carries out implications later, um, you know, maybe in the prophetic text that's expanded, okay? But, I mean, you could even see that uh, 12.3, for instance, I mean, in Genesis, there's a, there's a lot of interaction with the, with the nations mm-hmm. in Genesis itself. So I just, mm-hmm. I wonder your thoughts on that. Is mm-hmm. there any other supporting evidence? Um, and even with the Genesis 17, they're out of order. Mm-hmm. Uh, the eschatological is first. And yep. then the, so I just wonder, as you've seen it, is, is there any other supporting evidence that you could give for, for the two-step process mm-hmm. in Genesis? Um, the blessing reaching the nations gets specified in Genesis 22, 17 and 18. And so when it does, it focuses on a single male offspring. In Genesis 17, 9, offspring can be accompanied by plural pronouns. Their 
land. So the fact that Genesis 22:17b uses singular pronouns and Genesis 3:15 uses singular pronouns it suggests that indeed Moses has the ability to distinguish between so so offspring is as you know is a term that is always singular but it can have either singular or plural reference depending on the context but there are times in the Hebrew text where the biblical author can specify whether that seed is singular or plural it's not both and so the fact that he can distinguish and use plural pronouns and singular pronouns suggests to me that in Genesis 22 he's anticipating a single male offspring that will be the answer to the world's problems so when will that come is David it David wasn't it what about Solomon? Solomon wasn't it. And we keep moving and building to the point we get to Genesis, I mean, Psalm, um, Psalm 72. Is that the final of the Davidic Psalms? So Psalm 72, where it says, uh, Lushlomo to Solomon for Solomon, however we understand it. In that text it has, may this king, whose reign will last forever as long as the moon, whose reign will be expanded to fill the whole earth, may he, may the nations be blessed in him. There, so, so my point at this, at this juncture is simply to say that within Genesis there is a vision that is, that is future. Genesis 49 calls it the latter days. The latter days when the blessings that are given all the sons are laid out, including Genesis 49, 8 and 10 with respect to Judah, that the, that the scepter will not depart from him. Um, and so it seems to me that already within Genesis, sure, God is using people like Joseph to bless the nations. But it is nowhere near the level that is anticipated. What we're expecting is a single male offspring of the woman who will actually overcome all the God hostility that the serpent has caused. The God hostility of a level that climaxes in the flood judgment, that climaxes in the Tower of Babel judgment. And so we're looking at a, an individual that is bigger than anything the Old Testament hopes for. And Moses himself it seems to me, is looking in that direction when we have, when he begins to envision a prophet like himself who, will, who the people will finally listen to even though they won't listen to him. And yet he is certain, it says, his latter days, so there's four latter day texts, um, Genesis 49, Genesis, Numbers 24, the Balaam oracle, a star will rise from Jacob, and when he it does rise, all his light, the light of that single star will will make the light of all the multitude of stars grow strangely dim. Then Deuteronomy chapter four is the next latter days text that is explicitly a new covenant prophecy. And then Deuteronomy thirty one, where Moses says, In the latter days, judgment's gonna just come upon you. I'm certain of it. You're rebellious now. How much more will you be rebellious after my death? So my point is there's an, there is an eschatological vision here that's being set up in the Pentateuch that I think Moses had. And that, um, so we see 
typological anticipations, even the inclusion of people like Ruth and Uriah the Hittite, are anticipations. But the way that Genesis 17 language is, the father of a multitude of nations, nations that I think have to be by adoption, and that that adoption, if, if indeed the Genesis 17 vision is linked up with the blessing reaching all the families of the earth, Genesis 12, then, then they're looking for something beyond at anything that happens in Genesis or indeed in the rest of the Old Testament. That the vision is shooting much further ahead um, to one who will truly be a blessing. That's, that's, I guess, how my initial response would be. Okay. That's good. Thanks unsatisfied but we can <laughs> take it later no but it's it's good for good conversation later any other any other questions if you could introduce yourself yes. my name is dale south and uh, i just want to make sure i wasn't missing when, when we talk about the with the progressive covenantal with the promise of land as well do you see that just being a future eschatological new jerusalem or is there something else you know more present with that um. Um, the a progressive covenantal framework does not at all um, dismiss the possibility of an earthly millennium um, but it certainly doesn't require it and that the millennium itself would only be typological of what the texts are ultimately pointing to the new Jerusalem that we've already gathered to, Hebrews chapter 12, coming to earth, Revelation 21, as the bride of Christ and that new Jerusalem without a temple, that is, as I understand it, it would be there's no distinction between the temple and anything else. That's why we can say there's no temple. It looks like a cube because the Holy of Holies was a cube and the Holy of Holies is all in all. There's no longer the barriers of um, uh, segments and curtains and guardians, but rather all that has been done away with so that the new creation, the new Jerusalem that we've already gathered to is that Christ has taken us into the Holy of Holies and we have direct fellowship with our God. And that that will become real, not in an eternal spiritual sense, in an eternal physical sense. That it will come to space and time so that Romans 8 says this earth right now is groaning for the day when that new creation will come. So at one level, everything will be burned up. At another level, something about this world will be the same as in the future. So maybe it's like um, what C.S. Lewis portrays in the final book of the Narnia Chronicles as they go deeper in and higher up, they, they recall Narnia. And it's like, but it's like Narnia, but, but this is more real. It's like that was a shadow. But when I look at the mountains, well, let me put it this way. Um, there's different ways that the new creation is portrayed. One of the ones I like best is Ezekiel 47, where the Dead Sea has been transformed, no longer dead, and it's filled with fish, and all the shores are filled with fishermen. I, I kind of like that idea of fishing for eternity. Jesus ate fish and chips after his resurrection. That's not that bad. That, that there's, there are tangible hints of a, of a creation that is um, better than the millennium will be. I, I, have, I have no problem at all in the possibility of a millennium. Um, 
But I will say, in, in the last few years, I've seen many texts that I thought were millennial get sucked up into a more global new creation that is already inaugurated in the person of Christ. And so it may be better for, to call me an amillennialist or an inaugurated millennialist with questions rather than a historic pre-mill guy, which I have been classically for many, many years.